This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. So one of the um, tragedies, among the many tragedies of the war in the Holy Land that continues to go on, is that, in fact, the three great religions of that region, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all share one thing in common. We call them the Abrahamic faiths. And we describe them this way because despite their differences, all three religions claim Abraham, as a foundational figure. Abraham is the patriarch par excellence, the shadowy figure who stands at the beginning of the history of monotheism, the person whom all three faiths call father. It's remarkable when you stop to think about it. Abraham today is revered by 2.4 billion Christians, 1.6 billion Muslims, and 13 million Jews, yet his life is utterly devoid of the usual markers of the heroic. Abraham ruled no empire, commanded no army, conquered no territory, delivered no eloquent speeches or prophecies, performed no miracles, and wrote nothing. So what accounts for Abraham's staying power, for his legacy? St. Paul famously gives one answer, the one I tried to tell during my children's story, and that is that Abraham is a pillar of faith, a model for how we should listen to God's word and follow it, just as Jesus commands in our gospel text today. And if you remember the basic facts of Abraham's life, you can see why. 
When we first meet Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, then called Abram and Sarai, they are old folk without any children, ready to settle down for a quiet retirement in their hometown of Haran. And then from out of nowhere, God extends to them a bewildering invitation. Leave your home, leave your family and friends, and go where I say. You thought your life was coming to a close, but it's not. You have one last adventure ahead of you, God says. I'm not telling you yet where we're going, but trust me. The land will be full of promise and you will be blessed. I will not only give you a home, God says, but even at your ripe old age, I will make a family for you. And not only that, but from this time forward, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your fruitfulness. Imagine if you received such a message. It must have been an astonishing thing to hear and a nearly impossible one to take seriously. And yet, Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, respond in trust. They set aside their own expectations about the future and listen afresh for God's guidance for their lives. And even when the direction they receive is both unexpected and full of risk, Abraham and Sarah are willing to trust. And in time, through much struggle and strife, God gives them a new life, a new family, a new and enduring home. It is a story of faith and hope that 4,000 years later, we continue to retell. Now, the cynics among us may be tempted to dismiss Abraham and Sarah as deluded dreamers, here in New England, after all, we are known for being practical, hard-nosed, believing only what we can see with our own eyes. Placing our trust in the unseen does not come naturally to many of us. And yet, given the choice between trust and skepticism, Abraham and Sarah embrace trust. Their example proves what the great philosopher William James once said about faith in an essay he called, Is Life Worth Living? James writes, It is only by risking our person from one hour to another that we live at all, and often enough our faith beforehand in an uncertified result is the only thing that makes the result come true. Believe that life is worth living, and your belief, more often than not, will help to make it so. Think about learning to ride a bike. When you first get on, you're full of fear that you're going to fall. And it's only by convincing yourself, making yourself believe that you can do this, that's an important ingredient in actually doing it, trusting is an essential element. Now what drives the skeptics crazy about faith is that it is not susceptible to proof. Mathematicians can prove theorems in geometry, physicists can prove the laws that govern matter and motion, but we cannot prove our faith in the God of Abraham. 
But when you stop to think about it, this shouldn't be surprising. Most really important things in life are not amenable to proof. We cannot prove that life is better than death or that love is better than hate or that we should prefer beauty to ugliness. As Frederick Buechner puts it in his book, Wishful Thinking, faith in God is in this sense more like the faith we have in our friends. Listen to Buechner's analogy. Quote, I have faith that my friend is my friend. It is possible that all his motives are ulterior. It is possible that what he is secretly drawn to is not me, but my stuff. But nevertheless, there's something about the way I feel when he's around, about the way he looks me in the eye, about the way we can talk to each other without pretense and be silent together without embarrassment that makes me willing to put my life in his hands as I do each time I call him my friend. I can't prove the friendship of my friend. When I experience it, I don't need to prove it. When I don't experience it, no brief proof will do. If I tried to put his friendship to the test somehow, the test itself would ruin the friendship I was testing. So it is, concludes Buechner, with the godness of God. Now, too often we tend to reduce faith to a question about what we believe rather than in whom we believe. Yet faith is more like trust in someone than it is like belief about something. As Rowan Williams writes, our faith life starts as children. Again, as I tried to demonstrate with my children's story, it starts as children by learning how to trust others and by distinguishing genuinely trustworthy lives from untrustworthy ones. Likewise, the reason we Christians immerse ourselves every Sunday in word and sacrament is precisely because it is there in the gospel stories about Jesus and in our own dramatic reenactment of his last meal with his friends, that we encounter him, Jesus the person, and are given the opportunity to renew our decision to trust this man above all others as the embodiment of God's desire for humanity. So the first lesson Abraham teaches us is that faith really comes down to knowing whom to trust and how to trust. But as the late Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, once pointed out, there is a second, less appreciated reason why Abraham is such an inspiration to so many people around the world. For while Abraham certainly is an exemplar of faith and always sought to be true to that faith, he also, Rabbi Sachs points out, sought to be a blessing to others regardless of their faith. Go back and reread Abraham's story in Genesis carefully, beginning in chapter 12 and going through chapter 25. 
And you will see that, apart from his faithfulness, Abraham repeatedly models open-hearted hospitality to others. He welcomes strangers into his home, whomever they may be, and cares for them, as he does, for example, with the three mysterious visitors by the Oaks of Mamre. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, come into my office and look at the gigantic painting I have on my wall of those three visitors in Abraham and Sarah's home. And when, for example, Abraham's own nephew, Lot, chooses to live among the wicked people of Sodom, Abraham does not condemn him or them, but rather he pleads with God to show mercy upon the people, rather than to destroy the whole city for the wickedness of some. And although we tend to focus only on Abraham's one son, Isaac, the child God ultimately gives to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, the chosen one, let us not forget about Ishmael, the child Abraham first fathers with the Egyptian slave Hagar, and whom Abraham quietly continues to love and bless, even as Ishmael and his mother are sent off to lead their own separate lives. Ishmael, of course, is the son whom the Islamic tradition regards as the real chosen one, an ancestor to Muhammad. And while we may disagree with this view, we should be careful not to erase the story of Ishmael from our sacred text. For if you read Genesis closely in its entirety, you will see that even as Isaac becomes the bearer of the covenantal heritage that leads to Jesus, God himself blesses Ishmael on no fewer than four separate occasions. More tellingly still, upon Abraham's death, he is buried by both of these sons, Ishmael and Isaac, who at the end are reunited and stand side by side in loving memory of their father. This is the image I want to cling to as we pray about violence in the Holy Land. We Jews, Christians, and Muslims have so much to learn today from this one poignant scene at Abraham's graveside. And we Christians need to be open to the possibility, as Abraham was, that God may have chosen Isaac for one very important purpose and Ishmael for another. Yes, Abraham is a model of faith, as blessed St. Paul writes, but Abraham is also a model for being a blessing to others, regardless of their faith or lack of it. It is in his very ordinary humility and in his openness to God's presence in the lives of others that Abraham emerges as such an important person for our age. 
Again, to quote from Rabbi Sachs, Abraham impresses by the way he lives, not the way he forces or even urges others to live. Abraham teaches that it is not our task to conquer or convert the world or to enforce uniformity of belief. It is our task, rather, to be a blessing to the world. So my message this morning to you is a simple one. Trust in Jesus and be a blessing to others, no matter who they may be. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.